everyone. I'm Brittany, the content and research producer. And I'm Ellie, the media and content producer at Magnify. And welcome to the Magnify podcast, where we co-host aspirational conversations to help you thrive and work through faith. This podcast is a place where we explore all the topics and questions which we all grapple with in our careers in faith, from imposter syndrome, identity, perfectionism, acting in courage, boundaries, really the list could go on. We dig in and get frank about all things work using faith as a backdrop. And through these conversations with dynamic individuals, we hope you'll leave informed, intrigued, and inspired in your faith and work life. Reframing for me is about people, place, and pace. If I can change the people I'm around, change the place I'm in, and change the pace of my life, that's the best case scenario for reframing quickly. So today we're going to be talking about how we reframe failures. Um, So Brittany, how do you view your failures in your work? Interesting. For a long time, I think I viewed them as the worst thing ever. (laughs) Like I didn't think that it was something to come back from. So I would just try to avoid it, like try to do everything that I can to not. Um, And then, of course, you know, finally get to the point where you realize it is unavoidable. And so now do a lot of work with family and friends have... um, just learn to think of it as like a in some ways a launching pad like if it if something didn't work then it's a chance to kind of go back to square one like let it teach you in some ways yeah absolutely always lesson to take from whatever we go through and um, but for those of you listening do you see failures as a career damaging catastrophe or maybe as an experience that allows you to learn and therefore move forward and we all know that we should use failures to help us grow in the area we're in but in order to do that we really need to know how to reframe them so in this episode we're chatting to speaker and consultant jazz and Pafar on how to reframe our failures and work In her words, Jazz could easily tell her story of childhood abuse and of being fired from the business reality show The Apprentice from a place of anger. But after years of learning how to reframe, she tells from a place of humor and humility. Jazz shares how losing her brother made her realize we really do have a choice over how we handle the situations we're faced with. She hilariously recalls her emotions on experiencing a failure on national TV and discloses the three things she does to help reframe the hurdles she faces in life. This is probably one of the funniest and rawest episodes we've had, so let's listen in. We're so excited to chat to you today, um, Jazz. So welcome to Magnify Podcast. Um, and we <laughs> and we always just love to start with like an opening question for everyone to answer to just ease into it a bit. So what helps you to make you feel like your best self? So Jazz, do you want to go off with this one first? My best self. Um, I think it is that that commitment. It's intentional. It's not being on like automatic because left to my own devices, my default setting is probably misery and depression, which I know sounds odd, but I, I think without, without intentional choice, that's where I end up. So I wake up every morning and I choose to be the woman I'm supposed to be, not the woman the world says I should be. I choose that every morning. Sometimes I don't choose it till half 10, but I do choose it. <laughs> so, so I think, it, I think it's intention. I think it's intention that makes me show up as my best self. Amazing. I love that so much. And I love that you're on there with the 10.30 as well. <laughs> oh, I, I was lying. Sometimes it's four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm just trying to make myself look good. <laughs> just see how you feel each day. Yeah, I do my best. <laughs> Amazing. And Brittany, what about you? That's so good. I totally agree with that, Jess. It, it takes me a little bit sometimes. Some days, <laughs> some days better than others. You take it, take it as you can. Um, but I think I've realized like having conversations with other people, especially like unplanned conversations that get like, um, 
you know, that lasts like a bit longer. Like I've had conversations with people that have gone on like two, three hours and you're like, we did not intend to do that. But I'll, I usually end up leaving those feeling like with a lot of clarity about like what it is I want to do, who I am, like what, it, what's important for me. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I really enjoy that. So for it, for me, it does kind of take uh, a bit of like working with other people <laughs> to get to, to get to that place too. And um helping one another in that way. So yeah, definitely. I'm going to echo that as well. What Brittany says, I love those unplanned conversations and you just come away and you feel inspired and motivated in your work and stuff, but also just like something as simple as just going for a walk and just moving my body and just refreshing the mind somehow as well. Just can't go wrong. We also like to do um, a round of quick fire questions. Oh, I uh, like that. I guess just to get to know you a bit not, better. They're not maths <laughs> ones, are they? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. I don't do maths on a Tuesday. So just... <laughs> No, they're pretty, they're pretty chill. But before we dive into the conversation, um, just wanted to see if you could have a dinner party with three guests from any era, who would they be and why? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. I mean, I could go for like Oprah and Jada Pinkett. I could do that. But honestly, Rick Mayle would be a guest. And I'd also really like, there's so many people I'd like to have dinner with, but one is my grandma. My grandma died when I was, uh, what was in my early twenties, and um, and she brought me up, and I never really appreciated it. And how do you switch off and relax? Oh gosh, that's a hard question. Yeah, I'm (laughs) I'm an extrovert, not in that I'm I I have extrovert tendencies, but in the the way I recharge is by ideas and activity. So it's very hard to me for me to be a human being rather than a human doing. My default setting kind of feels like doing, but. I took up a hobby at the beginning of lockdown a year ago, dressmaking, because I've always wanted Ooh. to make my own clothes. And, and I am almost at the point where I could create something that you could actually wear in public. <laughs> Love that. So watch yeah. out for my fashion line in 2077. <laughs> no, so I, li- I, like, I like sewing because I don't get it. It's so, it's so hard. It's like engineering. So I like having to focus on tiny, tiny tasks that will build together and create something amazing. We'll definitely check back with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> on so lunch. Send in some orders. <laughs> yes. And what's your hidden talent besides the dressmaking? Uh, I don't have any hidden talents. All mine are on full show. Oh. oh, no, I can juggle fruit. I can juggle bananas. I don't get much chance oh, wow. to show that. And we always love to ask our guests as well this question, just because there's definitely threads um, from our childhood that lead into who we are and what we're doing um, at this time. So what was your childhood like and what do you think are the values that have shaped you into who you are today? Um, Well, my childhood was horrific. I lived with my grandparents until I was seven and the values there were very kind of working class hard work pride in your community that's why i hate the word disadvantage that's like that's my community you're talking about there so i I hate all that and it was a very strong work ethic and pride was important um but then when i moved in with my mum and my stepdad her husband you know i was being raped from sort of seven till eleven and then i lived on the streets i was looking after brothers and sisters i was like stealing food for them taking beatings for them uh, navigating awful things for them and with them, five of them. So it was hell. It was hell. I, I was a source of income to my parents. I wasn't human. So one one of the values that I got from that was um, a real lack of worth. You know, I mean, it, it makes it's it's actually textbook 
you know, because I know a lot about psychology, it's actually very textbook of what you, what your brain tells you in order to get you through that. It's your fault. It's because you're not worthy. It's you're not good enough. You're cheap. You're dirty. You're guilty. And that becomes a narrative that is safe because it explains why things are happening and actually disconfirming data that says, no, you are worth it. And we do believe in you can be physically painful because if, if your identity is not the one that you've crafted that keeps you safe, that makes sense why you're being hurt all the time, then it just breeds a lot of confusion and stress. So after, it, after when I was 11, after I ran away and I lived on the streets and I lived with a pimp and then I lived on the streets again, I was in and out of foster care. Um, there were, there were, the values were just all around survival. It was just all around survival. And there's almost like, um, like a dream deficit people talk about you know having aspirations and dreams but that can always be offensive to someone who literally cannot afford to remove blinkers because they're so focused on surviving and you go dream you're like no it's too dangerous so the values I think I took from it were quite negative and then as I started to grow and when I got to be safe when I was like 16 and I finally you know left and moved in well when 17 I was living in a community house and when I got to be towards safe there were values around being as far away from my parents as I could be as a person. And then looking at what does that look like and trying not to be too extreme and too like hyper having high expectations of myself that were impossible. So it has been a journey and my ability and skill and talent in reinventing myself as a child is impressive, but reinventing myself as an adult is, is even more so. So my, my childhood was unfortunately too similar to childhoods that happen to people and that are happening today and that have happened. But I'm incredibly lucky and blessed because I had a handful of people who stood with me and did witness and gave me a narrative that wasn't my own around success and potential and belief in yourself and belonging, the biggest thing. The greatest thing of, the greatest gift of healing is waking up. I used to wake up every morning and go, it's still not all, been, it's not worth it. It's not been worth it. I feel like I've made the best of a bad job, but it's not. But there was a point after I did my TED talk, the day after I woke up and I sat up in bed and I thought, I wonder if today is the day. And I sat up and I said, it was worth it. And that's the first time I meant it. This is, I know that this is sort of going off topic a bit, but speaking to you now, you're obviously someone that's very full of joy and, you know, full of passion and have such a positive mindset, which is so amazing and something I really admire about you, you know, like researching you, you just even through a screen, you like just want to be your best self, you know, through, through the power that you have and the words that you choose and things. So I suppose like from that childhood and experiencing those things that no child should ever have to go through to being where you are now, was there like a turning point? I know you spoke about that TED talk and waking up um, that morning and going today's the day, but what was that turning point like? And did you ever think that day was ever going to come as well? The, the hard, the, 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 the turning point, I guess, when it was when it got really hard, which was when I stopped being in danger of being hurt. And when I started having to be, you know, a regular, like, like 11 year old, I don't, I don't know how to do that. The turning point is a, is a series. If, if, if someone says to you one time, you are rubbish at this, you are not good enough at this. Apparently it takes like 15 times of you hearing the opposite just to get back where you were. So I don't, I don't know that a turning point is, is, was it was as that as much as it was this constant stream of disconfirming data from people who stood with me i talk in my ted talk about five everyday heroes but there was a cast of accidental saviors there was the school crossing lady who used to tell us jokes in the morning there's the dinner lady that used to 
come in and make us toast in the morning so we were always there so early there was the caretaker who used to let us have a go on that zamboni thing that buffs <laughs> up parquet floors which is really dangerous but great guy there's so many people who showed kindness and you know when 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 you are used to unkindness one act of kindness so small repeated again and again consistently literally melts the ice around your heart so the turning point is I, I, I it's just this complete string of people refusing to give up and it's like that birthday candle you know i get them for my kids to punk them you light it they blow it out and then it comes back alight again it's hours of fun <laughs> but it's like that it's like the people lit this hope this flame of hope inside me and even though it went out several times and it kept stopping and being extinguished just when you thought you'd poured water on it and earth on it then somebody would connect through an act of kindness and it would come back again and so because that belonging was there my identity started to change because identity is choice isn't it but belonging requires agreement and, and because i had agreement from people my identity changed and i think over time i figured what would happen if i could what would it be like if i was enough what would it look like if i could not just not to become a horrible person but because what if i started a new circle a new cycle a new way of being what if i met someone and had kids and created an incredible family and shared it with people what if i literally drove change what if i could go from surviving way past five thriving towards actually driving change yeah that's so amazing. And I think that also sort of links into what we want to talk about today is like that reframing of our situations mm. of where we're placed by other people. And also, like you said, you know, how we're treated by other people affects our identity. So understanding like how we can then reframe our identity within that as well. Um, but just beforehand, I'd love for you, I know that you'll sort of do a wealth of things really from being an entrepreneur, speaker and a consultant as well. But could you just delve into that a bit more and just, I suppose, like explain what your day to day looks like for our listeners mm. as well? Yeah, well, I've always been like at the heart of it. I'm an organic relational marketeer, I think. <laughs> That's what I do. I'm just very good at hooking people to people, people to resources. So mainly what I do is I speak. I'm a keynote speaker. I do motivational, inspirational talks for businesses. And then I also um, have a team that do coaching consultancy for me, under me. I don't really do much of that anymore because time is tight. And I create content around courses and toolkits for schools. Education is where my heart is. I have so much love for education. So I suppose I get people to change their mind about how powerful they are generally. That's, that's my job description. What a great job description. <laughs> I was about to say the most beautiful one. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's so, I mean, honestly, thank you so much for sharing um, even that bit with us. But like before we get into the reframing, I want to focus a little bit more on um, just the rejection and the failure, because that is like a tough one to yeah handle because I guess sometimes there is this misconception at times that when you do um, you know become successful or you become you come out of um, a situation and things appear to be better that like okay you're not dealing with rejection anymore you aren't dealing with failure anymore and I'm sure that's not the case for that's not the case for any of us but from your experience um, what has that been like yeah it's interesting isn't it because we do have this aversion to failure I, I personally I have a failure CV which I send into people because I want people to see what I've overcome. And even when I was teaching, I used to describe to like five-year-olds that failure 
you have to, you know, you have to fail to get success. Like a success is just a failure who got back up again and again and again and again. And resilience is the time it takes between falling in the hole and getting out of it. So my reframing journey used to take years and then I got it to months. Then I could do it in weeks. Then I could do it in days. Then I could do it in hours. I can do it in minutes. I'm going for seconds. So it's the ability of how do you get back to full fat you? You fail, right? You fail. You got two the sides of the ladder. I think they're called rails. If you've got that without the rungs, you haven't got a ladder. You got two poles. So every time you fail, you go for it and you fail. You get a rung and you put the rung in the ladder. Now you've got something to stand on. Then you do a bit of learning and you fail again. Now you got another rung. Then you do a bit. You stand on that. You do a bit of learning and then you fail again. Now you got another rung. And as long as you keep re reframing, coming back from that failure to learn. Before you know it, you've got a ladder and you're at the top. That's what success looks like. So I am intensely proud of every failure that I make. And it doesn't mean that when I say I aim for epic failure, what I should say is that I'm not scared of failure. And this is huge. I'm not afraid to fail. This is huge. Because people would say, yeah, yeah, me neither. I'm like, <laughs> really? Because if I followed you around for a week with a video camera watching you and videoing your thoughts and your words and what you say and what you do, Let's look at that empirical data and evidence. Because if you did that to me, and when you do that to me, you see like a, an, an intentional way of being around bravery. Doesn't mean that I don't get scared. Doesn't mean that I don't fail to take opportunities. But I have, I have trained myself in this habit because habits are good and bad and habits can be broken and, and restarted. But I have a habit of when I feel my tendency into like, oh God, I can't do it. I'm terrible. I, you know, my vulnerability vulture, Valerie, sits on my shoulder, digging a claws in, telling me you know, the imposter syndrome element. When I feel that, I use it as a trigger to go, okay, so let's look at the evidence and data of what other people believe to be true about you because they can't all be lying. That would be required too much organization. Let's look at the evidence and data from what other people say, think, feel, and do after you've spoken. I, I, I make decisions knowing that when it goes wrong, because people say, well, if it goes wrong, well, I can help you with that. It's going to go wrong. It's not if, it's when you're going to fail. So rather than worrying about failing, why don't you invest some energy in working out what you're going to do when you don't know what to do? Because that is the thing that will see you right when failures come and they will come. Yeah, definitely. I always find like um, the fear of failure is also magnified when we know the failure is going to be public. And obviously you were on The Apprentice in 2013, which yeah, yeah. thing you got fired from. So I'm interested to know, like, how was it handling a failure which was so public? And how did that differ to having something a bit more personal, which you could sort of deal with on your own? And how did you overcome that as well? Yes, nationwide failure. I think that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> because it's like, imagine everyone you've ever spoken to, had a word with, managed, led, you know, everyone, taught everyone, all seeing you like stuff up in the, like in the first week. Who gets fired in the first week? If you just own it, then what can people say? If people go, you failed. And you go, yeah, big time. And it was hideous. And I felt like giving up afterwards. And it took me a moment to get, it took me longer than a moment, if I'm honest, to get to the point of, so what does it look like now? So, so I, I feel like when I went on The Apprentice and fell, but my, my whole thing on that was, because I, I don't know if you know, but I, I do a reality TV show every 20 years. I actually have an addiction, clearly. So I did Blind Date when I was 20. And I went on that and I was a picker, guaranteed holiday. But it, I picked a guy who was hideous and he left me in a romantic restaurant to go to McDonald's. And that was on the best of Blind Date every year for the next nine years in the worst date category. It's the gift that kept on giving. And then 20, so I got over it finally, it took me 10 years. Then 20 years later, I did The Apprentice. Yeah. I get fired in the first week. Everybody sees it. And, and I came home because I wrote all my kids like 
um like you can't mm-hmm. tell anyone when you're going on so it's a big mm-hmm. secret but i wrote my kids a letter to open every day and inside the letter was a little photo a different photo for each mm-hmm. child for each day and a little moshy monster toy and a little note and then i was home i wrote like it's eight weeks i was going to be away so i wrote all these i was home in three days so and my kids were like shall we just open these and i remember saying to my husband i, I have to fake my own death babe i can't go I, this is going to be so humiliating i have to fake my own death and move to Guatemala and say my name's Susan. I can't live with the embarrassment. And he was like, well, you could just, maybe you could just take a bit of time. <laughs> See how it feels. Uh, so I went to stay with a friend for a bit and I kind of reframed when I was with her. I always think reframing for me is about people, place and pace. If I can change the people I'm around, change the place I'm in and change the pace of my life, that's the best case scenario for reframing quickly. So, so I went to stay with a friend and um, she laughed at me for a long time. Uh, and then, and then I started thinking about, so, okay, when, when this happens, you know, I'm going to own it. I'm going to get the response, get the opportunity to own it. Mm-hmm. And that means that I could show people what it's like to come back from a failure if I've done it, if I do it myself. And that means that I could actually encourage people who experience a genuine failure, not just looking a bit stupid on reality TV and, and show them that there's more to it than the it's, a failure. Is, it's not even a semicolon, let alone a full stop. It's a pause. It's a reframe and then it's a pivot and then it's a new journey. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> is it? I mean, just the number of laughs, but also just the wisdom behind all of this. Because <laughs> yeah. I think it's incredible that the way that you talk about talk about it, because it is it is partially just that of like if you can own it, especially when it's like a public thing, like if you can change the narrative and make sure that you're the one who like is in charge of it, then it's like this thing has kind of come out a little bit. Cause it's like if I've already like accepted it and said it for myself anything that you can say won't touch me but yeah 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 that was so good that was hilarious when you decide whether you're gonna let fear drive the bus or not it's I've got this I've got you know I I am I am blessed with this life which I shouldn't have which I I should I know I know I should be dead or in a in some sort of institution or lost in a world of sexual exploitation I know the stats and I'm not and that's because of people standing with me and my whole life is about paying that proving them right so they were right to believe in me my whole life is about paying that forward and celebrating every day the fact that it i didn't get crushed um and i think like as well just to go back to the sort of reframing failure i think that's such an important part of being like coming over failure you have to reframe it in order to move forward and progress and you spoke about like the three p's there which were important to you but i was wondering if you could just expand on that as well um and just be able to i suppose like one thing that we really loved that was written on your website was that an essential part of winning is determined by your ability to reframe every failure so i just thought the truth in that is just so loud so yeah i just would love to hear like more about how you have reframed failure yeah. in the past so, so for me, I, I saw um, um, James Adu talk, doing a talk about some research that had been done on resilient adults who'd had um, trauma as kids. And what they noticed was that they had three R's of resilience. But for me, these are also the three R's of reinvention because reinvention and resilience are the same thing. Resilience isn't about putting up with crap. R- resilience is about re- taking that time down between when you are on the floor and when you're not. That's the reframing element of it. So for me, the three hours of resilience or reinvention are the first one is you take responsibility for what you are responsible for and nothing else. 
So if you, if, you, if you make a mess, you clean it up, you take responsibility. If you make a mistake, you own it, you take responsibility. But you do not take responsibility for all the stuff that you waste your time worrying about that you have no control over, like what other people think of you. So respons responsibility for me is not worrying about stuff, not spending time obsessing over stuff, not, not, not future dreading stuff that I cannot personally, that I can't choose to control, that I can't have an impact on. There is lots I can have an impact on, but it's all tied up with how I turn up, how I show up. That's what I have full control over. Full control. The second R is reach out. And this, this is critical because people think it's so cute. Like I've got a lot of friends who struggle with addiction. I've got one friend in particular and, you know, he's gone through wives and women and drink and drugs. And he's just, you know, he says, I've got an addictive personality. I'm like, Evidence and data would suggest, but what do you want? What do you want to do? Anyway, so the last time that he kind of came out of rehab and done, I said, he said, it's going to be different this time. It's going to be different. I'm like, great. What are you going to do that's different? And he said, I really mean it this time. And I'm like, okay, I'll be here in three months. Because if your strategy is to do the same thing that you did before that got you, how are you not asking for help? How are you not sat opposite someone who knows a lot and who cares about you and has your back? How are you not saying, help me through this? Is that what? I am deeply suspicious of people who don't ask for help, myself included. So reaching out means that you don't try, we are we designed to be in community, you connect with others. And also it means that you dream bigger than you think is possible. Because you, what, you think you know the full sum of human achievement and possibility? No, you know what you know. You know, you've got your experiences and your, your thoughts and your feelings, but there's billions of people who have a different way of being so connect reach out engage don't think you can do it all on your own and then the last star is reframe and that's the most powerful one and that's where i, I how do we and you could do simple things like what would michelle obama do like have a piece of blue tack apparently there's three 300 uses for blue tack right and i think i've got about 12 but there's 300 and then i think i think of my 12 and then i think right if michelle obama had blue tack what would she do with it she might use it to stick up posters, you know, to say something that I wouldn't say because she's Michelle Obama. She might use it to create a video that inspires people to find stuff around the home and do stuff. I mean, Michelle Obama thinks differently to me. So suddenly I have access to different ways of being, thinking, feeling, doing that I don't have in myself. So reframing is about getting out of your own way. It's getting out of your own head. And when you say I can't, it's thinking, what would it look like if I could? And, and that reframing is you can you can. You can do it with someone. You can get someone to do it with you. That's a good way. But it becomes a habit. It becomes a way of being. And, and something I used to use is that if I, I can get into a real funk, not so much now because I'm really good at turning it around, but what I know is that if I, if I, there's five things that I can do, three Ps and then two things to help others. And if I do, any, if I do those five things, I will not sink into depression because it's like a series of little compromises I make on the way to this giving up. And, and so for me, it's changing the people I'm around. And most of the time I get into that funk when I'm on my own. We always think, oh, I'm, no one's gonna care, I'm not worth it. I'm like, yeah, all true. Now go and find someone and prove it. And then the second thing is place. I'm very, lots of people aren't, but I'm very sensitive to my surroundings. So like I, I used to be kept in dark rooms and locked in cellars and I think I've, kind of develop this appreciation for space, you know, I like this space. So I, if I get outside or if I go for a walk, I, I am a different, I have a different, I have different resource available to me. So it's finding, finding a place that is um, better than the place you are. It could be just going for a walk. It could be changing rooms. And then the last thing is pace. Usually, like I remember a couple of weeks ago, I sat at the computer and I was just like, 
I think I don't know I hadn't slept properly and then I hadn't fed myself properly I just you know wasn't looking after myself I wasn't putting the petrol in but I'm expecting the car to be Formula One <laughs> so, so I'm sat here not being a Formula One car and I'm sat and, I, and my husband says oh sh- shall we shall we just sit and have a cup of tea and I'm like I gotta do this email first he's like I think that email would be easier if you had a cup of tea I'm like no I gotta do I should do an email he's like yeah but you would have done it by now if you'd had a cup of tea <laughs> and I'm like right <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's change of pace because I was so in the slow lane and if you do those things it, it shifts your mindset you talked about going for a walk before that's changing the physiology changes your mind and then my other two things are around other people. So I, I'm, I make a list of people who I'm grateful for. And then I offer to help someone. And sometimes I force my help on someone because it is impossible to be miserable when you are doing someone else's ironing. It's impossible. You can't help someone and feel miserable. It, you can't do both at the same time. So <laughs> if, I, if I'm helping someone, I find it impossible to, to, to struggle. Because it's not me, I'm getting to be someone else. Yeah, definitely. And I love your emphasis there on like the role that other people play in mm. that process as well. I think that's so important because like you said, like you do when you're alone, you get into that funk and you just sort of bring yourself further and further down into this. Like I'm no good, I can't get up and go again because I failed this time. And that's just, you know, like all my victories are in the past, all my great ideas are all in the past, <laughs> yeah, all of that. Yeah all those thoughts go through you. And I suppose like one of the things which I'd love to bring into the conversation as well is the role that faith plays in coming into that Mm, as well and lifting you up. And what has the role of faith been for you in that as well? And also hearing no, how does help faith you understand that no is never a roadblock, but just that redirection? Oh, so that's the easy one. No always means no now. It doesn't mean no, never. People say no because of where they are now. I'm like, so I make a mental note to ask them again later because they're not ready yet but they might be ready later. You need a number. It's a numbers game. You need a number of no's to get to yes. I might be the 73rd person of the thousandth people who talk to someone about, I don't know, their white privilege. Um, And number 73 doesn't get a medal, actually. Number 73 often gets shouted down. But if number 73 wasn't there, there'd be a gap between 72 and 74. And that gap means it's now not 73 out of 100. It's 73 out of 100,000 because you weren't there. So I play my part. I do my job. And I don't worry about having to finish it off. If I get a no, that means one point more and someone else might be closer to a yes. So no is not, no is part of the journey. No, no's are important. Collect them. And I think, I think faith is, is, is very interesting. Because I, I, like I did Alpha a few years ago. And, and the first night I just poured every, I'm like, right, here are the reasons why I'm not acceptable and this whole religion thing won't work for me. And I just laid out all these reasons why it just won't work. Um, but I also had this thing where I want to be the best me I can be. And I don't care what that costs. Well, I do. I'm not going to murder anyone. But, you know, within my values, I don't care what that costs. So, and I remember um, saying to the woman outside in the car park, one of our leaders, um, Harry, and, and I said, look, if this Jesus thing is going to enhance my life in some way, I'll do the work, right? I'll do the work because I'm so committed to being the best I can be and not being anything like, you know, but just over, just being full fat me. I will, I will do the work. And she went, yeah, it's not really work. It's just about accepting that, you know, yeah, it's just about accepting yourself, acceptance. And I was like, what? And actually that's really hard when you talk about it. So I was, what I'm trying to say is that I was diametrically opposed to any element that involves any aspect around faith with good reason with good reason but there's something about um there's something about that birthday candle there's something about not being let go there's something about belonging 
because if like I'm not an expert but it you know when you look at what Jesus did the belonging kind of runs through it you know hanging out with undesirables and making people feel they were worthy people who didn't really feel like that sometimes it's all about belonging and then when people feel that they belong they start to change what they believe is possible about themselves they, they transform within themselves and then when that happens their behavior changes but lots of people always want to start with a behavior change and i'm like that's not how it works it's belonging first so belonging is huge for me and this idea that i could belong to something that i could have that i that someone something who happened to create the world also is my best mate i mean i can't get me around that but it, it, this idea that something could could be delighted in who i was and could see past all the crap to the core i mean i st I, I don't i'm trying to i'm trying to express it and i still don't get it and i remember coming back from alpha there's this this night where it's like they do this thing where we're like we're gonna pray this prayer and if you pray this prayer and i went back to my group and i said you know that thing where you pray that prayer if you want to say yes to jesus that i've done that nothing's happened how long do you have to wait when, when do you get the fruit basket i mean what what's it look like now and they're killing themselves laughing at me but i remember getting back that night and i've got a chair in my bedroom <laughs> it really felt like jesus was sat on the chair reading a newspaper like this and as i walked in jesus was like right great i've got so much fun planned <laughs> it was like i felt like because when i look back i can see like standing in a change room at 11 years old holding a dress after the guy i'd stayed been staying with because he found me on the streets and took me in who was a pimp um and now taking me shopping for clothes and i'm standing holding this dress which is actually lingerie while he waits outside and i know i'm not safe and i'm breaking down and i'm falling i i'm just school haven't reported me missing my parents don't care where i am i have no one i am i have no resource i have no way of doing anything and i don't know the word sexual exploitation but i know i'm not safe and then everything goes quiet like silence roared through that changing room it like stopped and it like it's like being in the the eye of a storm and one clear thought came to mind and that thought is there is no way mrs cook would wear this outfit mrs cook was my year one teacher who always wore brown long sleeves brown neck brown and and she just made me she did belonging with me and in that moment i just had this immense clarity and bravery i dropped the dress run out the changing room i run across the road into the police station i slam my hands on the counter and i say i demand the right to remain silent because I think that's what you do in police stations. And the guy behind the desk goes, okay. And that, I mean, I, you know, I, I'd been in and out of foster care before. I knew it was going to be a happy ever after ending. But when I look back, when I look back at, when I look back of all of it, there is no other explanation other than, other than someone, someone being there. I don't know all the answers, right? And that's not my job. My job is not to know all the answers. My job is to ask the difficult questions and struggle with the answer, get dirt under my fingernails. So that's what I do. But what I keep coming back to, what I keep coming back to is that there is, a, there is an undefinable love that I have not earned and couldn't deserve and couldn't, couldn't manufacture that I constantly receive. A lot of this is like, because um, my family, we, uh, my mom has always talked to me about, you know, sometimes sitting in the, sitting in the failure and sitting in the, the things that like, and aren't going the way that we want or any of it that's a little bit easy that's a little bit of the easier part it's a little bit harder to make a decision every single like you said every single day it's not like we wake up and do it for 30 years but like truly just day by day moment by moment to say maybe there's a different option you know it's almost hard to believe that like there could be 
a different option. And then it just takes something, just a small piece of you to be like, oh, well, what if? There's, um, there's a pastor, Lutheran pastor called Nadia Bowles Weber, right? One of my heroes. She's six foot two, swears like a trooper and is covered in tattoos. Ex-drug addict, absolutely amazing woman. And she sent this, um, that, you know, the verse, be still and know that I'm God. She sent this verse out and she sort of changed the words, but it's like, stop fighting, sit down and know that I am God. <laughs> and I love that. Like that's meeting people where they, this whole be still. I don't think I've ever been still. Maybe when I was an amoeba, I was still, but I don't, I don't do stillness, but very well. But you know, I know what it is to like, can you stop fighting for a minute? Can you take a breath? Can you just, can you just pause in that pause? Know that I'm with you. Oh, it's so exciting. It's so exciting, mm-hmm. but you can't, you, you the heart of this is, is that is, is failure and reframing. I mean, I, I just, I just, <laughs> my, my brother, there's six of us. My brother is, um, was two and a half years younger than me. And when I left home, he became me. He without, but he wasn't streetwise cause I'd always looked after him. So when I left, suddenly he went from being looked after by an older sibling. So having some buffer to having no buffer. And he was, he was, he was beaten and and he my stepdad used to sell me to other men i was a source of income once i left the income went but my brother became a source of income i mean and i didn't see him for a few years and then he came to school when it, when i started when i was i was in the third year he started in the second year when we were at secondary school and i saw him and i was so excited to see him and then i could see how dark the bags under his eyes were i could see that he was old and ravaged by you know by neglect and torture and i was i was enraged and, and I went back and I fought for years and got the kids out of home eventually. And everyone got put in foster care or adopted. And then, you know, it wasn't a smooth journey after that. It's been, but my brother, there's a lot of damage done. And, and he left school, you know, he checked out emotionally before I stopped going, but he left school and he, you know, just got involved in drugs and drink and smoking and, yeah. As you do, it's textbook. It's not, it's not rocket science, is it? You know, it's not rocket science. Um, and he, he just kind of opted out really of life. And he, and he, he, met, he met a girl and he had a baby and that, you know, they, they built a bit of a life and then we, we reconciled. And then a couple, of year, a couple of weeks before his 40th birthday, he took a heroin overdose and died. And I went to, I went to identify his body it was the week of The Apprentice. I was still wearing the coat that the BBC had bought me to swan around Camden buying lucky Chinese cats. And I saw him lying there and, and all I could think of was that should have been me. That could have been me. So when I talk about this stuff of resilience, I'm not talking about stuff I've read in a book. I'm talking about, I live this. I am living this today. I am living this. This is what it looks like. This is what choice looks like. And it is not easy. It's incredibly hard. And it's much easier to just lay down and give in. But me and my brother had the same experience. And I had people who stood with me. And he didn't. This is how much impact you can have on someone's life. When you say yes, even though you're scared, because courage is a trained way of being. Firefighters are courageous. They run towards like, you know, buildings that are collapsing. Bravery is the opposite. Bravery is when you are terrified, but you still take the first step. And, and that's at the heart of reframing. You don't have to be ready before you step. You do have to choose. You do get to write your story. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that last piece as well. And I'm very sorry to hear about your brother. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for you. Um, but we know that we appreciate every single word that you said in this hour um, and so much wisdom and laughter as well, which is so lovely to have. I hope that you've enjoyed it too. I'm actually really grateful to get the opportunity to sit down with you and recognise the journey that we are all on together. So from this conversation, here are our top three takeaways. First, we're Jazz's three R's for responsibility, reach out and reframe as a part of resilience. I just love how she has such simple steps that you can kind of take when you do experience a failure of kind of stepping back from it for a second uh, and really being able to harness it. Because I think sometimes with failure, it can be, as with most things in life, it can be overwhelming. And these were just really three concrete ways of being able to think that through and, and build that resilience for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. That simplicity of breaking it down step by step definitely links into our second point, which were the three P's she shared to help reframe, which were people, place and pace. Um, and yeah, I think it's just a great um, reminder that we just can never underestimate the role that we play in helping others and the role that other people play in helping us as well. Absolutely. And I think the last thing that she mentioned um, that we kind of connected with was just the idea of owning our failures. I mean, she even referred to it as a failure CV that she hands out, but recognizing that everything that those failures actually are all really if you re reframe it what's considered a failure in one season is actually um, a lesson and a stepping stone in another one definitely they all allow us sort of to be where we are today thank you so much for joining us for this episode if you know anyone who might love this episode too go ahead and share it with them and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we love to hear your thoughts and it really helps us out and if you enjoyed this podcast you can subscribe to our email list which you can find on the magnify website where you'll get connected and informed with even more inspiring content and also our inbox is always open so if you have a topic you want us to chat about or if you have something that you just want to add to our conversations you can email us at elliatmagnifycollective.com 